Hey, it's me. You're tuned into the Paul Leslie Hour, episode number nine. After years of the radio show, it's great to be on Stitcher and on iTunes. And from the radio days, I'm very pleased to be with this woman. This is Amanda Colleen Williams. She's a singer, songwriter, a businesswoman. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing great. I I can't complain. (laughs) So you're going to be playing some songs for us, and we're going to be talking about a number of things. I wanted to just kind of go back to the beginning. The whole Amanda Williams story. Every story has a beginning. So where were you when life began? Well, I guess like most folks, I was in my mama (laughs) (laughs) Uh, up in East Tennessee. uh, Actually, I got to go see Elvis in concert from that vantage, which wasn't much of one, I reckon, from the sight point of view. But I think something must have affected me from the vibrations in there because uh, Elvis is a big influence, as most folks that make music are influenced by the king. But, um, you know... I was born in 1977 up in East Tennessee in Knoxville. And my folks were really kind of unique because uh, they had been, they had lived within, you know, 30 miles of each other their whole lives, but they never met until they went on a blind date. And my mama was 18 and my daddy was, let's see, 18, 19, 21, 22, 23. And um, he came to pick her up in a purple suit and he was running late and, um, she just remembered opening the door and just kind of falling in love at first sight, which is a good thing if you know Williams is because that can carry you a little way with the, the kind of crap they can put you through later on, I reckon. But my dad was, he worked as a construction worker. He actually was like a, a almost like an electrical engineer, but he didn't have that full degree. He was like a associate degree type of guy. And he worked in these things called float glass plants up in East Tennessee. And this is before I was born. And one day he'd been working quite a bit of overtime. He went to work. He was 26 years old. And this uh, panel blew up on him, caught him on fire. 60% of his body, 1974. And um, he basically he didn't come home for six months, lucky to have lived through that. But just went through this horrendous accident, you know, this industrial accident. And my mama was 21 years old at the time, pretty as a... Peach. I don't know what comes from Tennessee. It's not peaches. Pretty as a persimmon, I guess. But she uh, she stuck with him, and uh, he even tried to get her to leave him because he thought he was going to die, and he kind of wanted to at first. You know, just getting. He was a good-looking guy. You know, he just got completely just burned. His upper body just completely disfigured him. So he tried to run her off, and he was real mean to her and stuff. And she was like just this young girl, man, like 21 years old sitting outside of his hospital room at Vanderbilt crying. And uh, the nurse that she says now was an angel, she said, honey, what's the matter? And and uh, she said, I'm going to leave him, I guess. I'm going to leave him. Uh, he wants me to. And that nurse just said, honey, don't leave him yet. Don't leave him now. If you're going to leave him, wait a little while, you know. And so Mama stuck it out, and they stayed together, stayed together till my dad passed away here last year. But he went on after that accident to, um, to, to follow his true bliss, which was songwriting. Thank God for that because he went from our family living in East Tennessee, basically living on social security and disability. My dad was pretty frugal. 
with his uh, money that he got from the government and from his uh, disability. But my mama decided after taking care of him so much that she was going to go back to nursing school. So we kind of went from, you know, middle class, lower middle class to after he got started writing with Garth Brooks down here in Nashville before Garth really got going. Every Monday they'd write and they wrote things like Papa Love Mama Ain't Going Down to the Sun Comes Up, New Way to Fly, Cold Shoulder, Not to Call the Old Man Out. Like a lot of Garth's, you know, stable of, you know, kind of the stuff that, that people associate with Garth, these funny, like clever, you know, rock in tunes. And then some of them like heart tugging stuff, you know, but it took us from living off of social security and disability and up in East Tennessee to him being able to put down cash for a house in Brentwood. It was like a $500,000 house in the nineties. And so it's just kind of amazing to go from, from that, you know, from one to the other extreme. And, you know, everybody thought that was crazy. And, you know, did you sell any songs today? You know, that kind of, making fun of him almost, but, uh, boy, he sure did show him, you know. <laughs> so that's where I got started. I, I got started just watching these two amazing people against all odds coming up from, you know, rural East Tennessee to, you know, really my dad just really shaping culture in a way. I mean, he wrote Three Wooden Crosses. Yeah. Which, you know, it's so cool to hear it on the radio now, and I even heard this, Radio DJ, bless his heart. He said, here comes a song that's one of the cla- most classic country songs, maybe the one of the best songs ever written in country music. And then he played Three Wooden Crosses. And man, after Dad passed, you know, something like that, it just really reminds you what a timeless legacy music is or art, you know, just art in general. I, that was a long-winded answer, eh? Hey, <laughs> feel free. Take Take all the time you need. <laughs> We're getting the whole story here. <laughs> T- tell me about you, Paul. <laughs> well, well, for all the listeners out there, I was introduced to the world of Amanda Colleen Williams through our mutual friend, the songwriter John Goodwin. <laughs> and he mm-hmm. said, uh, Paul, you know, you interview songwriters all the time. you got to interview Amanda Williams. Do you know about her? I said, I don't know about her. And he said, well, everybody loves her. And uh, <laughs> and we uh, we met. We did this little interview. the The first interview we did, I was uh, I think we were sitting on the street in Atlanta, and I had yep. a little digital recorder. <laughs> I remember that. I was I was uh, pretty. I think I had had a couple of cocktails that night. <laughs> but I remember thinking you were such a great guy. You know, I just remember what a warm person you are and you know what's funny everybody i've ever met through john goodwin you can really you can tell a lot about a person by the folks that he's friends with because he's kind of a a discerning cat you know (laughs) not in in an elitist kind of way either just like he'll he's his gaze he just kind of penetrates to your soul and he's like you know the the good or bad egg checker or something you know (laughs) i don't know yeah well i i see him as a very honest person (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely he is. He's a character, and I have to. You told us about your parents, and there's there's a lot of things there. Your mother sticking with your father, your father's persistence. What would you say you learned from your parents? Man, you know what's funny? Oh, Garth Brooks. I just, you know, 
it's amazing to have a man like that in, in your life, just as a person that you can just talk to about ordinary things. And after Dad passed, I, uh, I was talking with him, and he said, your parents are the sum total, or you're the sum total of all the good and bad about your parents. <laughs> and so I really think that's true because I learned so much from them, how I want to be, how I want to do different, you know, and I love and appreciate and respect them. It wasn't always a great relationship with them, you know. In fact, the Williamses, I think I'm going to write a book one day called Growing Up Williams. But um my Aunt Linda was actually diagnosed as PTSD just from her childhood. Because mm-hmm. it's like... Um, Hillbillies, you know, and, and I think what I've learned from just studying our culture, which people are like, huh, 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 culture of hillbilly. There is. And it, it ain't all good, but it's a lot of, um, kind of explosive self-expression is common and, and condoned way more so in rural kind of hillbilly style families. I don't know why that is. It may be like the Scotch Irish or the German, you know, intermingling of the, of the, the cultures or whatever it is, but I think from my dad I learned, you know, that I didn't want to yell at my kids because he was, and I, I think part of it was he couldn't hear that well and he would be so loud. I was kind of teasing him and calling Beethoven because he got to where he almost couldn't hear anything toward the end of his life and he would, he would laugh about it too and it would, and it embarrassed him and he wouldn't wear his, his, uh, where those things, hearing aids, he would not wear them. It was like a pride thing, you know. And so that pride thing, I think it's got good and bad things to it. And my mama, you know, she was so sheltered growing up. She'd never seen the ocean until she married dad. She'd never eaten a pizza. Hmm. She thought it was like the grossest thing she'd ever seen when she first saw a pizza. <laughs> Which I can get that, you know, if you've, grown, if you've gotten gravy and biscuit all your life and then you go and see a pizza, you'd be thinking, what? <laughs> but, um... But she went from that to kind of being shoved into this almost like arm candy position, being with my dad and being in among the music industry, which, you know, was pretty diverse and a lot different from where she came from. And she almost, uh, I mean, she, she thrived in that kind of attention, but she also rebelled from it. And she also strove for her own identity throughout that time because, you know, being the, the writer's wife, you know, she would say stuff like, people would ask her her name, and then they'd immediately forget it. So she'd just make up a name and tell it to them. Eventually, it was a little bit embarrassing sometimes, but I kind of get it why she would react that way, you know. <laughs> so I think coming, I think the biggest things that I gained from them are are this just like determinism, like this straight willpower to, if you're going to do something, you're just going to do it with all your might. And both of them ex- exhibit that kind of willpower. I kind of think about, you know, it's kind of interesting when you look at names, mm-hmm. you know, because Cooper were like the barrel makers and like Baker were the bakers. And you got, you know, all these last names that were significant to the, the trade. And what I think he's cool about my dad is like Williams. Will I am. <laughs> you know, and that is so true. Anybody had to live through a fire especially in 1974, and just keep. And it wasn't the only thing that almost killed him. He was on his deathbed half my life. One thing or another, he had tumors on his adrenal glands. He had narcolepsy, so he would just, like, fall asleep. He fell asleep driving one time and just 
almost was flying an airplane. Luckily, it was too overcast that day for him to be in the air. Probably would he would have been gone a little sooner. But I mean, just just all kind of stuff he persevered through. And then after, and then later in his life, which most people don't really know, he he suffered from a, a bipolar diagnosis, which really got him because he said that the physical pain was nothing compared to that kind of pain. Hmm. That that ooh, that brings tears to my eyes just to think about it, you know. Yeah. Well, how did you start to write yourself? Well, I loved always loved poetry. Dad would read uh, Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that on a rainy day up in Rogersville, and it sort of became part of my bones, I guess you could say. And then Shakespeare too. A lot of people don't know, but hillbilly culture has a lot to do with the, the ancients. In terms of study, like Davy Crockett read Ovid's Metamorphosis. He carried it around with him. He actually based his autobiography off of it, according to some. And so, you know, you get that Shakespeare. You, you see that, too, in, like, Garth stuff, especially the stuff he writes with Brian Kennedy, that Shakespearean bent. So it's a lot of this poetic upbringing anyway. And then the folk songs that we used to sing in school. And so I never really found a need for writing songs until I got to be an angsty teenager. Because I always had music. You know, I had started piano lessons at five, classical piano lessons from this teacher up in Rogersville who had studied at Duke. Amazing woman named Melissa Campbell. And she really opened my eyes to the, as Dad would say, long hair music, which doesn't mean Southern rock. That meant, you know, Mozart and <laughs> Beethoven and stuff. And so that that was always that musical undercurrent, but I didn't feel that need for self-expression until I guess I was about 15 and I tasted love, you know. And I I had uh, the first song that I ever wrote was called Talk to Me. And because I had absorbed so much craft from my dad, just being around him, I guess by osmosis, it had a good structure and everything. It had verse, chorus, verse. I think it, yeah, it had a bridge, but... um that sort of started, it, it tapped into the floodgate a little bit, and I wrote probably, I don't know, 20 songs over in my teenage years. I was in a little band, like a, a punk rock band with my best friend Leo was the bass player. She's the daughter of Larry Paxton, who's a big bass player here in town. And she lived with me for a while in high school after her mama's house burned down on Christmas. And, uh, we just rocked out, you know, and I was writing a little novel for, it was a novella, I mean, for school and, uh, in the junior year. And that's what really, I think, started tapping in. And then, oh, and then really what pushed me over the edge was I discovered PJ Harvey, who was like the most amazing woman I had ever heard play music because she wasn't on the radio. I just, I discovered her reading a, a review in some like, you know, music magazine. Thank God must have led me to her. But she was just so raw and so, like, in your face. And the first time I heard Rid of Me, her album, I hated it so much. But it hated it, and it compelled me to listen. And I was listening and listening and listening. I absorbed that, um, that, that rhythm, that just primal rhythm. And then I started playing guitar. And it was really my bass player friend that was like, you have to play guitar. Because I played bass and you're not going to play, you're going to play guitar now. I'm like, okay. So that really drove the writing. And then just, you know, it just became more and more. 
Are there any songs from those those the the first the first couple of years that you still play? No. <laughs> What's bad about that too? It's like they're not. It's not that they're bad. It's just that they were kind of folky. Mm-hmm. As much as I loved PJ Harvey, they were still they were like Joni Mitchell style stuff, which who I love to big influence, but nothing that I play out anyway. So, in addition to your father, you mentioned PJ Harvey. You mentioned Joni Mitchell. Tell us about some of the writers that have had the biggest influence on you. The writers? The songwriters, yes. Hmm. Or artists in general. The first ones, one of the first pro writers that I ever wrote with besides my dad was Dean Dillon. He was, he came out to our house one one morning and kind of stayed all day and I think he stayed the night too. What a character. (laughs) But um, I was, I think I was home from college. I went to college pretty young. Not, I didn't skip any grades, but I just, my birthday falls like kind of young in the year. So I was about a year younger than most of my friends. I believe I was like 17 or 18 when they did that. And uh, we wrote a song called Flying Away about dying. And it was about leaving your body and like watching, looking at your body as you're, as you're flying away. And it was kind of a trip, you know. I wouldn't say it was a commercial song. Heck, I, I don't even remember how it goes really. It's too bad on that one, but. Dean, of course, was such a huge influence, and then, of course, Dad, and then um, in terms of listening to writers, when I was a kid, my dad and, and Mom and I took a big, long cross-country road trip. I mean, we, we saw all the state parks, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them, and we listened to Dan Seals' tape over and over and over and over and over, and I just remember a lot of the stuff off of that really influenced me. John Denver huge influence my uncle Dwight who um I never got to meet him he actually passed away while my mom was pregnant with me too he was 17 he got into a car crash and wasn't when his seatbelt got run over and died but he was the family musician even at that young of an age and he loved John Denver and could would always sing take me home country roads and they put that on his stone and so that always compelled me to really just listen to that song, and it gave it this whole other level of meaning and that kind of sorrowful, you know, mountain type of music. And then um, I loved Patty Loveless, just thought she was the best singer of all time. And then, of course, Garth, and, you know, when he was writing with Dad. And then, um, and then after I got doing it professionally, I started listening to the radio more and thinking, hmm, maybe, you know, I need to try to write more commercially. I'm going to try to tame this wild beast inside and kind of point it toward my commercial target. And I was listening to the radio and I kept hearing these songs that there was this rhyming that happened in the middle of the lines. And I was like, what's the deal? It was like almost like a circular feeling where it wasn't this linear rhymes like a lot of my dad and his contemporaries wrote, but it was a little bit more, not like the rap country stuff we have today, but it had some of that inner line rhyming so much so that it just sort of, it made you feel like you were in a circular, a circular pattern or something. So I, I pulled out the charts and I started seeing the same name. It was Jay Steele. And I thought, okay, well, whoever this is, is awesome. I love that style. And I figured out it was Jeffrey Steele. And so I went to um, my buddy, Keith Anderson was playing. It was downtown in Nashville had this show. And I, I saw that, Jeffrey Steele had been 
working on his album, done some production on there. And I had met Keith because of uh, Thad had written Picking Wildflowers with him, which was awesome. And my my kids just sang it over and over and over, which is always a good sign. So I walked up to Keith, and I was like, man, it sounds so great. I love your stuff. Hey. I said, hey, I would love for you to introduce me to that Jeffrey Steele guy. I keep hearing his songs, and they're awesome. He goes, well, funny you should say. He's like, here he is right here. It was the guy standing right next to him. So <laughs> I got to meet him that that after that evening, and uh, and then later it was kind of synchronistic too. My dad and I, we were both signed to Magic Mustang as writers, and independently both decided to go to this thing called the Durango Songwriters Expo out in, ironically, in California. It wasn't in Durango, Colorado that year, but uh, which is where it got its name, but. I got onto the airplane with my friend Layla, who went with me, and Jeff Jeff Steele was on there. And Dad, I knew, was going there, too. He was being flown out there by the, the conference and stuff. And um, I was like, hey, Jeff, you know, Dad's coming out here with this thing. I know he wants to write with you. And uh, he's like, great, I'd love to write with your dad. And you, too. And I was like, what? So that was cool. I got to write <laughs> with Dad and Jeff the same Time and it actually came out a good song that uh, gets played a lot on some regional radio stations. I could play that for you if you want. Yeah, let's let's hear it. It's a little bit. It's, it's kind of a little bit too high for me that I normally like to sing, but but I'll sing it for you. All right. So you'll just know it's not my normal range. I need to probably rearrange it and do it do it a little better, but I'll do it for you get an idea of it what me and my old man and Jeffrey Steele come up with together it's called Girl Fight oh ha ha you're so clever making jokes at my expense let me turn around so you can see better where your tiny daggers are sticking in. And I know it's all insecurity, the well where all evil springs. But bitch, if you don't shut your mouth, I'm going to break out all your teeth. Swing, lay it with your 
stuff like that. Nice. Very good. That was pretty funny. I love that part. Jeff just was cracking up and he goes, oh, I wish I hadn't worn these. He's like, what are those short pants called? What are those short pants? I was like, capris. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I hadn't worn those white capris tonight. I was like, that's pretty funny, dude. That's funny now. <laughs> oh, man. Good times. And your father didn't want you to do music. Well, you know, he he it's kind of like he wanted mom, you know, he didn't want mom to leave him either, but he told her to. He wanted he he just said he said, "Mandy, if you can do anything else besides write songs for your living, do do that." He's like, "If it doesn't just consume you and eat you up, this is such a hard business. And if there's anything else you can do and be happy, I wish you would do that." And heck, he told me this in the 90s. That's before streaming came out and knocked out 80% of our workforce and everything, you know. Maybe he's a little bit of a prophetic in that way, but, uh, but yeah. I, I, you know what? I wanted to be a, an, uh, when I was little, I wanted to be an architect. Not an architect, an archaeologist. An archaeologist. That's kind of a big difference, ain't it? But I wanted to dig a dinosaur bone, is what I wanted to do. I still might want to do that one day if somebody would. Show me the shovel. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I don't know why. I think he, he just, he worried about me. He worried about the lifestyle. Cause there's so many folks that get into this and don't succeed, uh, or put un- unfair expectations on their, on their, uh, outcomes, things like that. But once I decided to do it, he just, you know, he threw his full weight of support behind me. But he was still competitive, man. I mean, that was kind of a trip, too. Like, he literally, when I got my Garth cut with the, the She's Tired of Boys, which was the only time I've gotten a, a big cut without Dad being a co-writer on there, or without him really, you know, pushing that himself, he didn't. He literally did not call me for two weeks. Hmm. None of those guys, none of those original guys got any cuts much on that Man Against Machine when Garth came out of retirement. And, boy, that, that kind of... Was, that was not good in terms of them liking me too much for a minute. It's kind of funny. I mean, especially in this times when it's so tough. I mean, there's basically nobody selling albums except for Garth, and now he started doing some streaming as well in a more limited capacity. But it, it really has had an effect. And not just that, but it is. It's sort of a competitive career choice even though you wouldn't think it would be in terms of being an artist but it is very competitive yeah well tell us a little bit about that that garth brooks cut that you got now you had known garth brooks for a long time is that correct i knew him since i was nine i guess i I met him when i was a kid he was a demo singer and i think that he already had his record deal signed or he was getting ready to sign his record deal when I met him. He and dad had been introduced by a couple of their work buddies. Um, dad had been coming down here to Nashville. He basically had moved here. He kind of moved when I was in the fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And he was gone to Nashville pretty much all the time. He came home maybe once a month or so. 
And that was pretty rough. But when we got to come visit him in Nashville, it was awesome. And we went to, uh, I remember it was County Q Studios. He was real excited about Garth because he, I guess he knew that he had some, some wheels moving about his career and, you know, dad being a new writer and he had really invested himself in Garth and believed a lot in him. Been writing with him every Monday and they'd been introduced by Garth's manager, which is Bob Doyle and a, a woman named Peggy Bradley. They'd just been standing in line at the post office and we're like, Oh, hey, uh, you know, Peggy was like, Hey, Bob, how are you? And he's like, Oh, I quit ASCAP. I'm managing this guy now. Oh, really? Oh, what's his name? His name's Garth Brooks and he's kind of like George Strait. And Peggy was like, great, well, I've got this writer I'm working with named Kim Williams, and he writes for George Strait, too. Let's get them together. Okay, okay. So they did. They started writing. And then here's Garth telling he was all excited about it because he thought he was going to write with a girl writer, Kim Williams, and then returned to this old, you know, burned-up man, but he just laughs about it. He said you'd see that, and about five minutes later, you didn't see the, the scars, which is Pretty true, but I, you know, I never saw them. I just grew up used to them. But then, uh, so we're down here in Nashville after they'd been writing, they were doing demos, which I know most of your listeners know what that is, but it's a demonstration recording. Like you go in, you take your songs and before they're recorded by the stars, you, you do a demonstration recording so that other people can hear it like it would sound on the radio instead of it just sounding like a, you know, a guitar vocal songwriter coffee shop thing. And so, uh, Garth's in there. He came walking through the door. I think I was I was by myself. The rest of the guys were in the back doing tracking, and my mom was there in the back, too. And uh, they had a Nintendo system and an old TV and a dartboard and a couple of games and things at the studio for people who were waiting. And I was like, and I, like I said, nine. I was into Legend of Zelda or whatever, Super Mario. <laughs> and Garth comes around the corner, and he's wearing... A trench coat, like a black trench coat with sweats underneath it. And he had these high top tennis shoes untied. I think a baseball cap. And he's probably scruffy a little bit. And I just thought, oh, cool. He looks like my cousin Stevie, who I just adored. Stevie was uh, my uncle Charlie's son that lived with us a while. And I just thought the sun sat in his eyes. You know, he was 16 when I was a little five-year-old or whatever. So... I thought, oh, great, here's, looks like a, a cousin Stevie coming to play. And sure enough, he came around there and he's like, hey, how's it going? I was like, good. And he's like, what you doing? I said, well, I'm just playing this game. And he's like, I'm not much on video games. You ever play darts? And I was like, no. He's like, here, I'll show you how to throw a dart. So he tried. And about then, Dad came in and swept him back off into the studio to uh, to sing the, the parts. And uh, I just never forget that was so funny because after it was over, my mom, you know, dad was all excited and mom was standing there. And of course, we'd seen Garth in his, you know, his sweatpants and stuff. Kim, dad goes, you know, Phillips, what do you think about, oh, Garth? You know, you think, I think he's going to be a big, you know, big thing. And mom goes, Kim, she kind of shook her head and looked down to the floor. She looked back and she says, he don't look like no star to me. <laughs> and then like a few years later um, he had done and going down to the sun comes up which he wrote with dad and Kent Blasey and he flew us out to Dallas Stadium when he was doing that live TV special where he, I don't know if it was live or not but he was flying across Dallas Stadium to the tune of Ain't Going Down to the Sun Comes Up with these like you know 
cables wrapped around his waist, like pulled him up, hoisted him into the air. He's like literally flying like Peter Pan to the very back of that arena where those people in the nosebleed seats could like high five him. <laughs> and here's like, you know, this rocking ain't going down. And dad throws his head back laughing. He punches mom on the arm and goes, does he look like a star to you now, Phyllis? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. What a good time that was. But yeah, I had met Garth, you know, I, he, I wouldn't call him, he's my, he's not my best friend or anything in terms of, I don't talk to him every day, but, um, he's always had a strong presence in my life. I mean, if it weren't for his phenomenal success, I wouldn't have had the opportunities I've had in terms of, you know, my, my folks putting me in the best private school in Nashville and then off to Boston and Berkeley College of Music and, you know, anything. You know, bought me a new car. I mean, just amazing, just generosity. Thanks to the success that he shared with with Garth, you know, 100%. So, so um, it was kind of cool when we started writing. I had had Garth's email for years, and I'm just kind of, I guess, a stubborn, you know, redheaded hillbilly or whatever. So I never wanted to just kind of mooch on my dad's relationships. As much as I'm proud of him, as much as I learned from him, I I always wanted to try to meet people on my own, you know. Of course, that wasn't the case with Garth. He was dad's friend, and so I really respected that a lot. And dad and I, like I mentioned, we we didn't always have, I mean, we had some kind of estrangements over the years over various things. We had been not really talking. And I just finally thought, and Garth had inducted that into the Hall of Fame. And I thought, I'm going to thank him for that, you know, because I'd heard all the wonderful things that Garth had said about that. And so I, I emailed him the email that I had. And I, I just thought, well, there went that, you know, five minutes later, maybe not even that much. I get this email back like, oh, my gosh, so great to hear from you. All this and that. And I hadn't seen him. I guess I had been 16 or something or 17. I mean, just you know, teenager, the last time I had actually seen him, and this was, I don't know, I don't know, I was in my 30s. That's how long it had been since I had really talked to him. I guess I'd seen him maybe in passing, but never really t- had talked to him since then. And so I was just kind of like, wow, and he immediately, he's like, anything I can do to help you, I want to hear your songs, you know, I want to, you know, hear what you've been doing. I couldn't believe it, you know, as a songwriter, that's like, the Holy Grail is having an artist, especially a Garth Brooks, like the Garth Brooks, tell you, yeah, send me songs, you know. And so I was just like freaking out. So I sent him, uh, I sent him a song called Never Understand that I always love. And a lot of people, it had been cut, it's been cut a bunch. It's made the charts a few times for some indies. It's never been cut in a big way. But Garth, uh, he emailed me back. You didn't ask me for this, but I would love to, you know, mentor you. I would love to be, a, uh, you know, to help you with your with your artistry. He said, I love this. I'm just wondering if it might could go like this. And so he started to kind of mess around with it some. And, he, and I, you know, of course, if it had been anybody but Garth, I probably wouldn't have even tried it just because that song's such a, it just gets such a strong response, not just from me, but from everybody that hears it. But because it was Garth, I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll change everything about it. You know, I want to learn as much as I can. 
And of course, he, he was making it into like a guy song too. It was, it's a girl song as it is now, which tickled me, you know, heck yeah, do whatever you want to with it. Great. And, uh, then I start, you know, this insecurity little thing pops up and I'm like, okay. I'm like, this person, I don't know who this person is. Maybe this is not even Garth. This guy thinks this is somebody messing with me. They think, they know that I think I'm talking to Garth and they're messing with me. Hmm. This is my thought. So then I'm thinking this, like totally doubting myself, like couldn't possibly be this good of a fortune, right? And the next thing I know, I get back this little snippet of a recording. And it's Garth Brooks singing the first person chorus of my song. And I was like, oh, my God, it is him. It's just funny how your mind, I don't know if it's a songwriter thing or just a crazy people thing or what it is. If people, you know, your mind just goes like to the dark spot sometimes. But that one turned out to be so such a blessing. And uh, after a couple of years, I don't know if it was even a couple of years. It was a, a while he finally asked me to write with him. And he had, uh, she's, she's tired of boys. He already had it going when he brought me in. So I just, I'm so grateful to him. He actually is such a gentleman. He asked my dad permission if he could write with me. Wow. Before he, and also because that song's a little bit of a, it's a little racy, you know. It's sort of the answer to, uh, that summer, which is this, they call it May December romance, where it's this young man and this older woman. And then our song is the opposite of that. And Garth, you know, he loves his fans and he loves, he loves and respects women. And I think he was, he didn't want to be this old guy, older guy writing about, you know, this like kind of a conquest song type of thing. It wasn't about that for him. It was about telling the story of the flip side of the, that summer. And, um, I think he wanted me to help him to temper it that way to make sure that it didn't go in the way that it would have if maybe only a man had written it. But Garth, he's such a sensitive person. I think he would have he would have done fine without me, but I'm sure grateful that he brought me on it. It's quite a story. <laughs> you mean to play it? Actually, you know what? I'll play. How about I play Never Understand, the song I sent him first, and then I'll play, and then I'll play you, She's Tired of Boys, and you can see maybe why he would have brought me in on it. Too, because I think it's. I think there's some. It's not. It doesn't sound the same, but it. It's got the same type of a melancholy like tone, but without being sad. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know. That would be very cool. Yeah, I'll do that. I'd love that. So this one's called "Never Understand," and this is one of the first songs that I sent to Garth for him to hear. And I wrote this song with a guy named D. Scott Miller here in Nashville, and it's been recorded, I don't know, a bunch of times, but maybe one day it'll be a hit. It was like this. I still remember when I said to you, I've always loved you. Me too. I stood there waiting, feeling so small, knowing your silence was saying it all. Do you love someone so much? Your heart breaks. 
wants so bad Your whole body aches Till the memory of a touch Burns you like a brand Till you've been there and you felt that You never understand I thought of that moment Night after night What could I do different? Why wasn't this right? Now I don't know Which part is worse Living without you Or you living with her Do you love someone so much? So bad, your whole body aches till the memory of a touch burns you like a brand. Till you've been there and you felt that you never understand. So bad, your whole body aches till the memory of a touch burns you like a brand. Do you been there and you felt it? You never understand. Great song. Thank you. Yeah, I just love that song. You know, that song is, let's see, wrote it in 2002, 2003. It's been around a minute. Let's see. Okay, so now I'll play She's Tired of Boys. And this one's on Garth's albums, the uh, Man Against Machine album, and also the, um, the Ultimate Collection. I've been fighting with this capo here, too. It doesn't want to clamp down hard as it needs to. Let me make sure I'm trying to stay in tune. I, had a, I have a place up in Nashville, 7695, where I do my concerts, and my buddy Tony Stampley, such a sweetheart, but he came in and knocked my guitar off its stand, and it, the neck broke off of it. Like, normally you knock a guitar off, and it just, like, puts a little ding on it or something, no big deal. This knocked the neck off. So I had to have it put back on there. It's missing a truss rod screw, according to my luthier. So she's getting it for me, but uh, it's still missing that. So it kind of dips in and out of tune on me. So I apologize if it sounds terrible. Hopefully not too bad. It still sounds good. 
Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for being kind. <laughs> and here's the, uh, here's She Started Boys. I wrote with Garth Brooks. She walked on to the job site We damn near died She was a young man's dream Full of college pride Once I called her a kid she got kind of mad She said, don't call me a kid, Pops And I won't call you Dad So I guess you could say We hit it off from the start With much difference in age It ain't a question of heart One day after she was waiting outside She said we gotta talk So we went for a ride She said I'm tired of boys I'm tired of first dates And I'm tired of toys I need a lover with a knowing hand Someone Mostly scared to death And I bet we talked for hours About the demons that we dread Then we went on back to her place And put our fears to bed She's moved on down the line They can't figure why they see her Back in town from time to time They bet she's got a lover Me, I never say a word I just smile and keep my head down God bless the day I hear She said I'm
Thanks for doing that. That was really interesting to see the the two songs together. Yeah. I like that. Because of the fact that you knew Garth from such a young age, you said you were about nine when you first met him. Tell me, I'm, I'm very curious, was it still intimidating to write with him? Yeah. And you know what? It was more intimidating because... I was out of practice. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, really what it was, I, you know, we started going through this economic kind of change. The distribution models changed in 1999 for the songwriting and music business community. And that's the year I graduated from Berkeley with a music business degree. And we didn't really start feeling the difference in the, in the, uh, the money side of things really for a while, but basically what was, you know, if you basically, if you take your monthly paycheck and divide it by 91, that's what happened to the songwriter over the course of the past 20 years. And so it's pretty rough. Like you, you're not even like I've got, I say 8 million units to my name. It's probably more than that because if you count up all the, other times that Garth has actually cut the song multiple times, different songs. But, uh, and then a bluegrass, a couple bluegrass things that I've had kind of charted. But like, you know, you have to diversify in this type of a marketplace. And so what I did, I went entrepreneurially and started teaching other songwriters to do the same, to take your uh, your passions and your areas of mastery and then apply your songwriting craft to creating new compositions and new business models to help you to sustain, you know, where you're, you're streaming. If you're going to stream your music, you're probably not going to make enough money to support yourself or your family. Just as a, a non-performing songwriter, in other words, somebody like my daddy was burned and couldn't, didn't tour, you know. And so, um, so I had really been focused on that and also homeschooling my kids for seven years. And so I hadn't been writing daily or even weekly like I probably should have been. And so by the time Garth, you know, my my mentor galore, you know, from all these years of just looking up to him like amazing guy that he is, when he asked me to come in and write, I just felt so dang stupid and slow, like just so rusty. And it's funny because what I said to him ended up turning up in some of his interviews, kind of paraphrased where he felt the same way because he said his pen was rusty. That's what I said to him. I was like, dude, I'm not this slow at writing. You know, it just felt it was intimidating, but also because he had so much of the song already done and we wrote the majority of the sessions were just email. And, and I, 
and I was just so rusty. I mean, I just look back and I'm like cringing about it. Now, I mean, I made a point to myself, I'll never get rusty again. I mean, that will never happen again to me. I'll, I mean, you say never, you shouldn't say never, I know, but, but, but seriously, I mean, now, I, there is not a time when I don't sit down and write a song within two hours. Period. And that's the way I was before. That's kind of how my dad and I, you know, my dad trained me that way. He, he studied psychology. He was about two or three credit hours away from a psychology degree at UT when he just kind of quit that and started really focusing on the songwriting thing. Uh, mostly because all of his classmates were talking about how much money they could get going into whichever field it was. And that was the deciding factor. He just wanted, he didn't want that. He wanted, he loved the, the fascination of studying the mind and creativity and all this. So he just decided to be a practitioner of it <laughs> rather than, <laughs> rather than a, a doctor of it, I guess. But using that method, you know, got back into studying that, that what my dad had taught me. And based on his influence, I've got this system now called Right Brain, W-R-I-T-E Brain Songcrafting Method. And that's what I teach to my songpreneur students. And it's amazing because you tap into that flow in the right brain and you get the whole song done and then you go back in, edit it. You know, so many people that have tried to write anything, not just songs, but your your editor, your inner editor will start trying to dot the I's and cross the T's before you really got anything worth polishing, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, I think Roger Miller wasn't either one that said, songwriting is easy, you just stare at a blank piece of paper until drops of blood form on your forehead. <laughs> but if you can get into that flow, and you know, the entrepreneurs of tech community a lot talks about flow hacking and all this. It's the same thing. We go through that same process, but you get into that flow, and then your song comes out so much easier, and then you go back and, and revise it. So, yeah, I was I was intimidated getting in the room with Garth, not because... Not so much because he was garbage, but because I was just beating myself up over it the whole time, sitting there think, thinking, you idiot, how did you dare get rusty in this craft that you have mastered? You know, you idiot. That's what I was thinking the whole time, pretty much. Do you find that songwriting is a therapeutic thing for you? Oh, yes. I mean, that's the original reason to write. You know, it's funny. A lot of people say, oh, I only write ballads. I have such a hard time writing up tempos. And I think that's because the initial urge to write is to heal your inner wounds. Like if you can find a pen and paper, you can. And, you know, we've all got one instrument that's God given. It's our voice. And if you can, even if you don't play an instrument, you can definitely get out a lot of these like toxic emotions in a beautiful way if you try, you know. And definitely I think that that is absolutely therapy. Absolutely it is. Everyone in life, and I think that this is something that is about songs that we identify with sometimes, not just the song, but we think about who wrote it, or at least I did, is that we all go through turmoil. We all go through heartache. You've been through a lot in your life. For anyone out there. I ain't even telling you part of it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, 
there was a, a press on uh, a press release on Webster PR about the fact that you had been battling cancer. Yeah. Yep. So many people are, man. I just can't believe how many people have cancer. Young people. You know, I'd start feeling sorry for myself a little bit. Like, I'm so young, you kids are in my thirties, you know, and then I look. Actually, one day it really hit me so hard because I was in, I was feeling terrible, right? And I'm in the, the doctor, I think the radiation office or whatever. Sitting there feeling sorry for myself more than anything. I mean, it, physically it's painful, but the, the mental pain is like dad said the worst. And I'm feeling sorry for myself and, and I, I'm waiting and I hear outside the door, they're on the scales. The nurse is like weighing somebody on the scales and she's like, Oh, she's like 50 pounds. And I'm thinking, golly, this person is like emaciated, right? You know, and then. And then, oh, and then I can tell by her tone, this is a child. Yeah. And I just, oh, I thought, I thought, self, you are such an idiot feeling sorry for yourself. Here's this child. How would you like to be that parent? And I, I shaped it pretty quick after that. What would you say for anyone out there who, whether it's mental, their health, physical, they're feeling despair. What would you say to them? You know, I'd say I love you. I'd say I love you, brother. I love you, sister. You know, you could, it's easy to say get up. But sometimes you just can't. Hmm. Sometimes you don't need to. You know, sometimes you just need to lay down. Lay there. Hold yourself and realize that somewhere, somewhere on this earth, on the mountaintops, there's people that sit there and pray for us all day long. It's all they do all day long. And if you try hard enough, you can tap into some of that love, you know. It comes from, you know, just, just little things like, you know, realizing that, you know, the statistics show that, what is it, like two out of three people feel, you know, just have, have like some kind of major trauma going on in their lives at any given time. And when you encounter somebody in, in the wild or, in, you know, in public or whatever, a smile can mean the difference. In somebody's ability to navigate this, just oh, such a beautiful place here on earth, but God, it's just hard, you know? It can be so hard. And just, you know, music, that's what I think, that's what is so interesting about our times right now because the delivery mechanism that we encounter our music, most of us, we love live music, most of us that love music go out and see live music. But many of us have now started, you know, just kind of tapping into this musical stream that comes into our devices. You know, it's just, it's like by magic and it's suddenly it's everywhere and it's, it's all the time and it's, and it becomes, you know, partly because of the, they have to, you know, the difference between a sound wave and an MP3, for example, 
like the difference between your your CD version of your song or your vinyl version of your song, a wave file, let's say, and an MP3, is if if you take the lyric sheet, right? You're looking at the lyrics and you kick out every word except for the, every tenth word. So you only read, you, you like count one word and then you count down and the tenth word, then you read it. That's the sample rate that you get for an MP3. So you're missing, if you did that to the lyric, you would miss the complete meaning of the song, right? An MP3 actually cuts out some guitars, like you, you'll be missing. You ever hear a song on the radio and you're like, man, that just doesn't quite sound as good as it did back in my youth. Because sometimes they'll, uh, the DJs will play MP3s. And you're like, oh, I can't tell the difference. Yes, you can. And you may not be able to tell it with your ears, but your heart knows and your body knows because those vibrations hit your skin just as much as they do your ears. And then you take that MP3. So they've kicked out every, you know, every word except for every tenth word, right? You go even further to streaming and you kick out every word except for every thirtieth word. So you see how dumbed down the sound wave becomes when it becomes a stream, it becomes to where it loses its ability to penetrate our consciousness. It becomes something that is more of a, uh, you know, you have to strive to reach to that music to feel something in it. It's just the like heartbeat of your day, you know, kind of not thinking about it rather than something that's just going to grab you by the heart and make you sit down. Or something that's gonna make you pull, you know, and the same thing with the radio. You hear some of the good quality, you know, audio file coming through that radio and you will pull, you will pull your car over sometimes. I think probably a lot of us have had that experience where something grabs us. A lot of people tell me they have, that happened with three wooden crosses. They just pull over, man. And that's because of the powerfulness, the, the, the power of that music. And, and even, one of the things that I've done, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know about it, but I have a program that I take in the schools, MAP, Music Ambassadors Program, and I've seen 5,000 kids over the years, mostly rural areas, but uh, also I've gone into psychiatric hospitals for kids, and these are not just psychiatric hospitals, but places where they take kids who have committed violent crimes and things like that. And, uh, you know, there's an epidemic right now, of especially, I don't know why it's the young girls that do it more than the boys, but they're self-harm, they call it. It's where they take something and cut themselves. They cut their, their arms up. And I've been in there with those little girls, and I tell you what, it's amazing what teaching a kid to write will do. Because when, if you go in, see, I'll go in, and all the pain that I've been through in my life and dealing with, you know, mental illness in various capacities and with my family and, in my own personal struggles, I got street cred when I go into these places because I just talk to the kids with my heart, and they know. They know where, that my heart loves them. And so they open up, and and they, when I follow up with their, uh, with their caregivers, they say that some of the kids have replaced self-harm with writing now. And to me, that is... The most amazing, wonderful thing to take that self-harming activity and put it to a pen and paper and to unfold something that 
you know, could end up being a legacy for them. It's great. It's amazing. The power of that music and the power of writing. Just the power of expression, period. Like taking and, and not with a dang device. You know, we get so caught up in the med- the medium now. It's just so it's all electronics and gadgets and, and technology is great. I mean, that's how we're communicating right now. You're you know, you're miles away from me. We're not even in the same room doing this. And that's great because we're gonna be able to touch so many more people with this with this, you know, interview that we're doing. But the, the 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 essence of it is the communication that we're having, not the technology tools that we're using. They're the tools that we use. And we gotta I think what's timely we have to keep that in proper perspective because if we let if we let it all become about the physical the tools, then it really loses some of the uh, the magic. The magic is people. People are the magic. It's not about the gadgets. It's not about the connectivity. It's about the connection. Absolutely. I have to say, it's like all this stuff, it's just it's really hitting me. You know what I mean? It's just this. This has been a very special interview. Well, you're a very special person, Paul. I mean, special man. You really are. Well, I want everyone out there, if you aren't familiar with Amanda Colleen Williams, you can visit her on her website, and you can connect with her in person. <laughs> she she performs, and you can get the real performance. But this has been great to have have this experience. It's amandacolleenwilliams.com. Yeah, it's actually Colleen. Colleen, sorry. It's okay. It's just same for it's the same but different. <laughs> it's the same spelling, so. And all of you out there, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can. And if you would give us a review and maybe rate us if you like it, feel free to do so. And if you want to call into the, the, the listener number, it's 912-376-9529. And if we like what you have to say or we think it might be interesting, we might play it back on the show. And Amanda Colleen Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. My pleasure. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.